Thank you. You can be seated. It's the same song they played at my father's funeral. Memorial Day, of course, is a a time when we honor those who have given their lives to defend our country, defend freedom. And if you think about it, people who made the sacrifice for something greater than themselves, something beyond them, a greater cause, and then we all experience the benefits of that in the freedom that we have to worship how we want to worship, who we want to worship, to speak freely, to debate in the open square, all that possible because those who have given their lives. My father served through three wars and survived them all, but many families uh, didn't experience that. They lost loved ones. There are many here who, who have lost friends on the battlefield. And uh, I think we best honor them by living a life for something beyond ourselves. And that's what I would hope that all of us would aspire to do with our freedom. So we have a, a day of remembrance, a memorial day, but, but Jesus ha- has a memorial day himself, and that's what I want us to dive into this morning. It's in Matthew chapter 26 that we're going to be, be looking at. So if you'd turn that, turn on your device or grab a Bible from the chair rack in front of you, and go to Matthew 26. That's where we're going to start. And, and here Jesus talks about his sacrificial death for us and institutes a memorial that we should keep, that we should follow for him to remember his sacrificial death for us. I want to start in verse 17, if you'll follow along with me. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near, and I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. To fully understand this memorial that that Jesus has given us, I want to look at this passage in light of three questions. And and simply this whole upper room thing, the three questions I want us to, to see answered this morning is, why were they there? What was Jesus teaching? And how can that teaching change our lives? So first is, why were they there? Well, they were there to celebrate the Passover. And before I get into this, some of you are going to notice that I'm limping just a little bit. And so, full confession, had a very minor surgery earlier in the week And I'm only telling you this because I didn't think anybody would really notice, and I didn't get 10 feet in the church, and people started asking, so that's why some of you actually care about me, so you want to know why, so that's it. Some of you just want to make fun of me, so you want to know why, so that's it. But uh, that's kind of what's happening. But So Jesus is is in the upper room, and he's talking to his disciples, and, and they're all there to celebrate Passover. Now, when I say Passover, a lot of you will instantly think back to something that happened in the Old Testament, and that is the original Passover. 
And, and some of you who are newer in the faith, you're not going to really understand that. So let me just remind everybody of that. This all goes back to the time of Moses. And, and just to put Moses into context, after creation, generations after that, God calls a man named Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, Iraq area, to go to a promised land, which was Canaan or Palestine. In faith, he does that. God promises that he will make a great nation out of this man, actually nations, but God's chosen people. And so Abraham's there, and he has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons is um, taken and sold into slavery by his brothers who are jealous of him, and he ends up a slave in Egypt, and through the providence of God in, a, a, in several years, ends up being second to Pharaoh in all the land, something only God can do, obviously. And then at this time in history, there was a famine that happened in that entire region of the world, and that affected Palestine as well as Egypt. And then through all that, Joseph, second most powerful man in, in Egypt, arranges for his entire family to come to Egypt and be taken care of. They're less than 80 at that point in this family, in Abraham's family. They come, they settle in a place called Goshen. Everything's good. But then, through a couple of generations, a new pharaoh uh, arises to the throne, and he doesn't know anything about Joseph. Joseph's been long gone off the scene, and he notices there's an entire nation now because they've grown in number that's living in their land, and he decides to enslave them. And actually, this was all told to Abraham by God, that this nation that he would would, have, would start, would begin, would be enslaved for 400 years. And that's exactly what happened in Egypt. At the end of that 400 years, God raised up Moses to come and, and deliver his people from Egypt. And so he did that. And then that was when all the plagues happened, the 10 plagues. Not if you know where I'm coming from, you've seen the movie. You know, we know what happens there. So they go through this series of plagues. The Pharaoh doesn't want to turn all this uh, labor force uh, loose. He doesn't want to free them. So there's a conflict. And then the last plague, which is by far the most severe, happens. And that is the death of the firstborn sons. And God says that I'm going to send an angel, and he's going to come and bring justice, justice in the form of the death of the all firstborn sons. And so, so as he does that, something came up, and, and that is that the Israelites weren't necessarily exempt from this. As a matter of fact, they wouldn't have been, because we, we all really are accountable to justice. And so God makes a way for the Israelites to be spared. And they're told that every family was to take a perfect lamb, kill it, and then take the blood from that lamb and spread it on the exterior doorpost of their house and then eat the lamb that night. And, and then when the angel came, he would pass over those homes with blood applied to the doorpost. And so that's what happened. And then later, we know that 
after that, the, the next day when, when this happened, the Israelites were spared because of their faith in the provision that God had made through the blood. And then they leave, and then Moses gets the, the law from God on Mount Sinai that, you know, and, and all this kind of happens. Well, and they were told then to, to keep this remembrance, this Passover every year to remind the people that God had delivered them from slavery, that he did it with blood. And so now years later, about 1,400 years later, it's the time of Jesus. Uh, we mentioned how, how Jesus now is, he's in his, we were talking about, a little bit about this last week, but he's in his last week of ministry. And they're in the upper room, and it's, it's the night that he was betrayed. And so that's why they were there to celebrate Passover. But the next question is, well, what was Jesus teaching through this whole upper room experience, this first communion, this Passover meal? Because he, he changes some things. What, what was going on there? What, what's Christ teaching? And, and basically, Jesus uses the Passover to teach about his own death. And he's preparing them for what's going to happen next. Because even though Jesus has been telling the people, and especially his followers, that he was going to be killed, they were having a hard time accepting that. They didn't really see it. And remember, Jesus had a very short ministry. It only lasted three years. And, and then it all came to a head. And let's, uh, let's pick it up there in the verse we left off, which is verse 20. And now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples, and they were eating. He said, Truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And it would have been good for that man if he hadn't been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Now, it must have shocked Judas to know that Jesus knew that he had already arranged with the leaders of, uh, of Judaism, the religious leaders, to betray Jesus. And, and that all came to a head because during... Christ's ministry, he became increasingly in conflict with the religious leaders. And we've been talking about that for the last few weeks in, in a series of parables that Jesus told. But what we find at the end of Jesus' ministry is that even the multitudes were, were starting to become disillusioned. And here at the beginning of this week, on Sunday, that's the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Everybody's celebrating. Everybody's saying that he's the son of David, the Messiah, the one who's to come. Big celebration in town. But then just a few days later, we see the crowds are turning on Christ. The leaders had always been in opposition, most of them. But the multitude, the more they realized that Jesus was not there to be their political deliverer as Messiah, the more they started to turn and reject Christ because they wanted somebody that would come and overthrow Rome so that they would have their independence as a nation again. And when they saw that Jesus wasn't 
the person that was going to do that. He wasn't that kind of king, that kind of leader. Then they turned in on him, and, and here the day after this upper room experience, they're crying out for his blood. So that's, that's the progression that we see. And it must have shocked Judas because he, he had already decided to betray, had already received money. But the religious leaders didn't want to, to kill Jesus or, or eliminate Jesus, even though they decided to do that. They didn't want to do it during this week because all the people that were packed into Jerusalem, and a lot of them had a favorable opinion of Jesus, so it caused too big of a stir, so they decided, we're going to wait until afterwards. But now Jesus lets Judas know that he knows he's going to be betrayed, and he lets Judas know, although the other disciples don't really catch that, that he knows it's Judas who will be the betrayer. And then it's interesting, if you notice what Jesus says, it would, be, would have been better if, the, if Judas, the betrayer, had never been born. That's interesting to me because today, people have a hard time with judgment and hell, the whole concept of hell. So today, um, people, even Christian people, will, will sometimes believe that Okay, those who, who don't follow Christ, well, when they die, they must just cease to exist or something because the concept of hell just seems too difficult to bear. But that's not what Jesus taught. In Luke 16, Jesus talked about hell in detail. And here, when he's saying that it would be better that Judas was never born, he's implying something that it's not that when, when Judas dies, he will cease to exist but that he will live e eternally, in a sense, from his soul, and that he will be in torment, separated from God forever. That's worse than if he would have ever existed. And so it's just another reminder that, that Jesus is teaching, hey, there is a real hell. And by the way, the problem for all of us is that we find from the pages of Scripture that we all deserve hell, separation from God. Because of our sin, we all deserve to be there forever. And that's why Jesus' teaching here is so key. What Jesus is teaching in the upper room is that his death is substitutionary. That his death is self-sacrificial. It's for us. And think about it. All those years ago, they've been celebrating this for 1,400 years. You know, how is it that a a furry barnyard animal that if you kill it, that somehow exempts you from the justice of God. That, that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense as it stands alone. But the issue is, hey, it's not just that. Then there's the law saying that this was a way for, our, for sins to be covered through the sacrificial system. Then there's a prophet Isaiah saying, hey, this Messiah that we're all talking about who is to come, the true king of Israel, the son of David, by the way, he's going to be afflicted and he's going to be silent before his afflictors. He'll be like a lamb led to slaughter. And then John the Baptist comes and he's the one that ushers in the public ministry of Jesus through 
him baptizing Jesus at the very beginning of his last three years. And when he sees Jesus in the crowd, in the distance, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God. And the people standing there understood what John the Baptist was saying. The Lamb of God. This is the sacrificial Lamb. And they probably did not have a concept, how can this apply to this man, this person? Even if we saw him as Messiah, how could that be? And people today, of course, say, you know, why, why all this sacrifice? Why the blood? Why this system, this bloody system? Why can't God, if God is love, why can't God just love us and, and, and forgive us? Why all this mess? Well, there's a reason for that. And it's because real love real love, life-changing love, life-giving love. It's always self-sacrificial. You see, love is more than, than an emotion. Uh, the way we always say it around here is, is love is action. Love always costs. You cannot love somebody in trouble without self-sacrifice. You cannot love somebody who's needy without sacrificing for them. And i got to tell you, we're all needy. We've all got issues. And, and probably most of us have come to realize that, that love is action, and the action is self-sacrifice. And the deeper the love, the more that self-sacrifice becomes substitutionary sacrifice. And so we learned that in marriage, right? That love is self-sacrifice. Pam's learned that. She has to love me. I mean, love, it's self-sacrifice. Parenting. With friendships, with people even in our church family, real love, real love, life-changing love. If so, is self-sacrificial in nature, it's action. And Jesus, he pulled out all the stops, and that's what he's teaching, because he loves perfectly. And he gave his life so that tragically flawed. Tra tragically flawed people like you and me could be loved, could be forgiven, could be restored. He made a way for us to be forgiven for every sin that we've committed. So how can a furry barnyard animal, how could by killing this innocent animal, how does that exempt us from all of our sins? How does that exempt us from justice? Well, in a sense, it didn't. In a sense, it was all just a foreshadowing. The death of the lamb in that first Passover, and then also the sacrificial system that was instituted by Moses from God on Mount Sinai, basically where we get the law of God, which is teaching us here are God's standards 
which are set so high, we're realizing none of us can measure up. So embedded in the law is the sacrificial system to, to cover us temporarily while we don't measure up. And then, of course, over the next 1,400 years, what happens with with the Jewish religious leaders is they had turned that law of God, the moral law of God, into a system of rules, and they dumbed it down to a way that some uh, very religious types, like the Pharisees, could actually feel like they were keeping the law. And then Jesus came and brought his ministry, and in his first and most famous sermon says, you're not keeping the law, not in your heart, not really. You still have sin. And we realize we're all guilty. And so how did the Israelites escape true justice that came to them in the form of the death of their firstborn? Well, it's because many years later, the God of the universe allowed His firstborn Son to die so that the firstborn sons of the Jewish people could live. That's what Jesus is teaching. That's what He's saying here when He's saying, explaining to them in the upper room, showing them through the Passover celebration that His death was substitutionary. And the bread and the cup become symbols of that. Not just that Jesus died for us, but that Jesus came to die instead of us. What was Jesus teaching? What was he teaching? Hey, his death is substitutionary. This is the night before he's betrayed and then he's killed. He's preparing them for that. And and by the way, as I was reading through this, it's interesting to me because All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all talk about this event, the upper room. John, a little differently, emphasizes how Jesus um, got up from the table and washed the other disciples' feet, and they kind of object to that, and he does that, and and all the symbolism in there. And then they have this bread in the cup. But what's interesting to me is as they describe this meal, nobody ever mentions the main course. And when we talk about meals, when we're thinking back on big, significant meals, usually in our stories, the main course, right? Or is that just me or or us guys? I don't know. But, you know, meat, the meat. Well, what's the main course? The lamb. And we, we don't know this. It's purely speculation. But when none of them mentions the main course, it may be that Jesus intentionally left the main course of the meal out so that the people would come to understand as disciples that the lamb wasn't sitting on the table. The lamb was reclining at the table. The lamb of God, the substitute for us. Jesus is, is teaching us this. He's trying to help us to see that in a u- universe ruled by a just God, sin has to be punished or there is no justice. Sin has to be punished. 
And I know we don't live in a perfectly just world now, but perfect justice is coming because our God is perfectly just. And Jesus came to take our punishment. And so Jesus, who was abandoned by the religious leaders of Israel, who was then eventually abandoned by the masses in Israel, and by the way, also abandoned by his closest friends, and ultimately, on the cross, abandoned by his Father, came and experienced that to take our place, to pay our price for sin through his death on the cross. And he did that so that we can be forgiven without violating God's justice because our sin was paid for by the only one who didn't have his own sins to pay for. He paid our price. So then the last question, which is simply, well, how does Jesus' teaching transform my life? I mean, what, what's that saying to me? What does Jesus want me to take away from this? And, and really, I, I think it can be categorized three ways, which is dependency, community, and expectancy. But let me explain that. First of all, and, and this is by far the most important, dependency. What's the main takeaway? How can, how can this teaching of Jesus change our lives? That we would understand that we as people are totally dependent on what Jesus did, who He is and what He did for us to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God, that we are totally dependent, which, by the way, makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world, which all amount just to systems, merit-based systems, where people do whatever the system tells them to do so they can somehow attain or merit God's favor. So they can climb their way closer and closer to God. But Jesus comes and says, all that is wrong. All that is false religion. It's God who comes down to our level. And it's nothing that we do. It's everything that He does. That there's no way by living a good life, by doing good things, we could make up even for one sin. Because the good is what we're created to do. The good is what we're supposed to do. We still have the violations of God's law on our account. Nothing can erase that that we can do in ourselves. We have to be totally, completely, 100% dependent on Jesus. And He came to make that possible, and that's what we call the gospel, which just simply means good news, and that's the good news that Jesus came for sinners like us and through his death made a way for us to be forgiven. And, and so how does that all come together? Well, it comes together this way. God created the world and everything in it. And then uniquely, God created mankind. And he gave us a special gift, uh, a gift of freedom, which allowed us to have a real loving relationship with God, not forced, not robotic, that we could choose to love God back. But every single one of us misused our freedom, 
to live for ourselves and violate God's standards, we've all come up short. And justice demands in a just universe that 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 coming up short, that sin, that wrong against God, our Creator, that that be punished. And so we all stand in judgment. We all stand guilty. We all rightly deserve separation from God forever because we're sinful and He's righteous. He created us and He gave us His standard and we violated it. But because God loves us, He made a way. And I want you to know that God knows you and that He loves you. He loves you more than you've ever dreamed. First of all, you need to know that, that we're all more flawed than we've ever realized because God's standard is so much higher than ours. We try to dumb it down all the time. It doesn't work. But also that God loves us in spite of our sin more than we've ever dreamed. And, and so He made a way by allowing His one and only Son who existed eternally as God, God in Trinity, God in community, the Son leaves heaven, comes to earth, clothes Himself in His own creation and humanity to be found in appearance as a man, 100% man, 100% God. He lives a perfect life. He tells us where we've strayed from the law, but ultimately He came as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin, to pay for our sin debt. And that's what He did. That's how He loved us, completely self-sacrificially and substitutionally. And then the way we get that credited to our account, the way that works for us, because we cannot earn a connection with God, it's simply through faith. Faith, trust, belief, they're all related words. And when I say faith in this context, when the Bible talks about saving faith or faith that allows us to have a relationship with God, that means that we believe who Jesus is, that He's the very Son of God, and that we trust in the fact that His death was the atoning sacrifice. His death was substitutionary for us, that He took on our sin penalty on His death on the cross for all of our sins, past, present, and future, all of our sins paid for once for all on the cross of Calvary, that we believe who Jesus is, we trust that His death on the cross paid for all of our sins. And then there's this, that if we truly have that kind of faith in Christ, it will change the way we live. Because when we realize the depth of our sin and therefore see the staggering grace of His gift, that will change us forever. Our dependency on Christ will change our life. And that's really, that's really how you know if people have really experienced the faith the Bible talks about is that their lives are not the same that in gratitude they want to follow Him. And they want to do what He would have them to do. And, and that doesn't mean that people are perfect. It means that they have a desire to follow. And so that's the dependency. That's the most important thing, the most important takeaway 
from what Christ taught in the upper room is that we, we need to be dependent on Christ alone, and there's nothing else that goes with that, not church attendance, baptism, anything else. It's Christ and Christ alone. But the second thing that we can take away from the upper room experience is community. I mean, that's kind of what was happening there. He, he brought them all together. And right now, I would like uh, the, the cups to be passed out for communion. And actually, our, our music team can come and take the platform now anytime. And so, community, what do I mean by that? Think about it. They're there in the upper world. Where in the first century, where would somebody normally celebrate the Passover? Well, they, a lot of times they would go to Jerusalem, but they would do that as a family because they celebrated Passover as a family. So, that means that uh, if, if they were single, they would go to their family of origin. If they were married, they would be with their wife and children. That's how they would celebrate Passover. But here, Jesus, in the first century, he calls them together to one table, all the disciples to do this meal together, and then tells us that we should keep doing this together. Why? Because he's teaching us that if we have true faith in Jesus, and that has impacted our life, then we become brothers and sisters with other people who have true faith in Jesus. And so we come together as family. God's family, adopted in, in our case, into God's family. And we live in a new family, a new community called church. And that's what we are here as Grace Community. And so who should take communion? Well, Scripture says only true believers should take communion. Please hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying if you consider yourself a Christian, it's okay to take communion. I'm saying if you have placed your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, then that's what it means to be a true Christian. And that decision should change your life, and you should be able to see that change. If you're a true Christian, then you're welcome to take communion. You don't have to be a member of Grace Community Church. You don't have to be a member of just our family because we're all one family. But it's important, Scripture tells it's important, tells us it's important that if you're not sure of your faith in Christ, don't take communion. And, and for that, for today, then that's just hang on to that cup and you're going to throw the empties away at the door. If your ha yours happens to be full because you didn't take communion, it's okay to throw it away in the trash with the others. That's how you get rid of it. But we want to do what God wants us to do. Think about it in the first century for the first time in history. Churches start celebrating communion. And for the first time ever, rich people were washing the feet of slaves. People from all walks of life, for all nations, all languages were coming together at the table realizing that they were all equally dependent on Christ for forgiveness and that nothing else would do. So right now as we, we have the elements, thanks. And, and this is just a convenient way if you look at this little cup 
as our church has gotten bigger, we do this in a more simplistic way, but there's a, a clear top, and if you just peel that away, that, that reveals just a white wafer, which serves as our bread this morning. And then let me get back to Scripture, back to the upper room, um, as we take this as brothers and sisters together. The next verse is verse 26. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we, if we look at the law at all, if we just see your standards, we all know in our hearts how much we've come up short and God, we're blown away by your love for us. Self-sacrificial love. Substitutionary love. It's amazing grace. God, thank you for allowing your one and only son to voluntarily give his life for us. Give up his body instead of us. God, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So church family, all true believers, let's take the bread together. And then if you peel back the next layer there, that, that reveals the, the juice. Just that whole tab. Next verse says, and when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. God's family, let's take this cup together. Father God, we thank you that you allowed Christ's blood, that he voluntarily gave up his life to pour his blood out for us onto the ground of some dusty hill in Palestine 2,000 years ago so that we today could be forgiven, set free from our sins. Lord, that we can follow you in joy forever, knowing that. That we don't have to attain, that there's nothing we have to do. That we don't have to wonder if we've fallen short. We know we've fallen short and that you've taken care of it for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness. Thanks for grace. In Christ's name, amen. And then the next, uh, the last two verses simply say, that's the expectancy. So, Dependency, most important, community, expectancy. Verse 29, but I say to you, Jesus said, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day, that day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And here Jesus is reminding us that we all in Christ have a future, that we will be enjoying him forever in his presence in a place called heaven.